0: Uh, as As you are well aware, today is the fifteenth uh, anniversary of nine eleven and as I shared with you last Sunday, we have uh, a unique and special opportunity to um, to welcome and hear from a man uh, to welcome both he and his wife and then hear from uh, a man who uh who happened to be there uh, in New York City at the moments of that, uh, uh, those tragic uh, attacks. Uh, Jacob Cohen and his wife Stephanie, they are going to be our uh, mission conference speakers next spring in March. And as I got to learn a little bit more about them, Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with Jacob a couple weeks ago over a cup of coffee, and I learned that he came to the Lord uh, at 26 years old. Uh, Born and raised in Israel, Uh, came to saw Jesus as Messiah, can see now how the Lord was revealing himself to him for many, many years, even as a young boy. And at 26 years old, Came to profess Jesus as the Christ. Uh, I don't want to I want to allow him room to to share his own story, but I will tell you that that both he and Stephanie are just dear, dear believers in God. And, um, And Jacob has an obvious love for the Lord, love for the gospel and a, a really a compelling love for the lost. Um, he has also served as a police chaplain, which just by the very nature of that work means that he is obviously gifted in ways of mercy and compassion and tenderness. And so I just want to um, introduce to you uh, Mr. Jacob Cohen, as he comes and shares a bit of his testimony with us.
1: Thank you. I that. All right. Yeah, every uh, every year. Am I on this mic then? Yeah. Every year, as we approach uh, September 11th, uh, this certain wave of emotion, uh, a very disconcerting wave of emotion, uh, comes over me. And effortlessly, it just sucks me into the vortex. Even if I'm not listening or watching to TV or I try to avoid it completely, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, your body is like a clock, you know, and it goes off. And around the end of August, uh, beginning of September, I find myself uh, standing on that mound of the South Tower, where I spent countless hours. And so I want to apologize in advance as I recall these events and testify to what I saw with my own eyes. You know, I I, I like the idea of leaving Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. I don't want to be the weeping prophet. But a lot of times, I get embarrassed because I cry over these things, and it's just how it is. You know, the World Trade Center had uh, 71 escalators. It had 254 elevators, which made between four and 500 trips a day each. It had um, uh, six emergency generators, enough to power 4,000 suburban homes. And the water from the Hudson River was pumped into it to cool the air conditioning system, which was uh, approximately the size of a battleship, just to give you an idea of the enormity of this of these buildings. Uh, Stephanie and I landed in New York City on vacation <laughs> on September 10th of 2001. And there was a little bit of jet lag going on, and our flight was delayed. And uh, so we landed about 10 p.m. Uh, Monday night, and we were planning to go down to... Uh, uh, to, right, not too far from the World Trade Center site, about a quarter of a mile away um, uh, earlier that morning, but we were so tired we decided to sleep in and just skip it and go in the afternoon or maybe late morning. Now just to give you an idea, we were eight miles from ground zero and we were about one mile or so from the Hudson River and if you recall the hijackers followed the Hudson River in order to crash into the uh, World Trade Center, you can't miss it, it's a you know straight run. So Tuesday morning, now I am asleep, I mean, just a, a rock sleep, uh, because of the insomnia and we didn't get, we were watching, we were watching a movie on TV, actually we were watching Young Frankenstein, 2 in the morning. <laughs> so I didn't get to sleep until 2, 2.30, somewhere around there, and Tuesday morning this jet flies overhead at about 1,000 feet above me, above us, and again, we were 8 miles from ground zero, and it sounded like it was going to crash into the area. And it woke me up and I thought, first I thought, are they trying to make an emergency landing? And I thought, start, it, something's wrong because LaGuardia is this way and they're heading, they're heading, uh, uh, they're heading <laughs> south. It, it didn't make sense. And I was so tired and I was so groggy, I just kind of, uh, uh, kind of threw up a prayer. I looked at the clock, it was 8.40 something, way too early to get up for vacation. <laughs> I went back to sleep and about three minutes later, Stephanie comes downstairs and wakes me up and tells me that the plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. And a lot of thoughts flew through through my head. You know, maybe this is an accident. Could it be the plane that I just went over? That's too horrible to think of, you know? And when we turned the TV on, I saw the amount of black smoke, and I know that this was not a Cessna, it was not a small plane. And of course, I thought, like everybody else, I started thinking, did they come back to finish off the job? They, they started in 1993 when the world uh, bomb was placed in the World Trade Center in a truck. And you know because I was born in Israel, uh, I came here to the States when I was young, but I was born in Israel, I kind of stink like an Israeli in this way. And I know the one thing they do in the Middle East is they detonate one bomb, and then they wait about 10, 15 minutes, and then they detonate the second bomb in order to kill more people, you know, people who come in to help, um, first responders and the like. So all these thoughts are kind of going through my head, and, as these things are racing through my mind um, i we watched the, uh, the the next plane hit the, uh, the hit the south tower and of course, at that point, we all knew that this was purposeful it was a terrorist attack. The one thing I regret uh, to this day is I did not bring my police i d at that time I worked with the sheriff 's office. Um, in El Dorado County. So I was a police chaplain. I had police ID. I did not bring it. I purposefully left it behind thinking, you know, God forbid I lose your ID. Explain that to the sheriff. How you lost your ID in in New York somewhere, you know. So I left it behind in California. and Because of that I was not able to come immediately to the site. And um, so I was home watching on TV what you all saw on TV as well. But I was just uh, we were just closer. We were seven or eight miles away. And we could actually, you could actually see the smoke from where we were, just to give you an idea of... Uh. So, I essentially, I volunteered. I found a command post in Yonkers Raceway. I volunteered. There was a Red Cross leaving for the World Trade Center. I told the lieutenant in charge, I said to him, listen, I'm not just some kind of lunatic who likes to see blood and gore. This is my job back in California. I'm a police chaplain. Uh, because remember at that time we didn't know what was going on and the fear was that uh, other terrorists would lob grenades into crowds. We had no idea what was going to go on, what was happening. Now looking back we know, but now at that time we didn't know. So he denied me access. A red, tr- cross, a red cross truck was leaving and I said, hey he's going down there, can I hop on? He said no. He said go home, uh, make some calls. Like, well, who do you call when two planes hit uh, two skyscrapers. Who do you call exactly? I'm not really sure. So I don't know. I called the Red Cross. The phone lines, the hard lines, landlines were tied into the North Tower. So the landlines were dead. And the. Uh, uh, the uh, <clears throat> Uh, Cell phones were so busy because everybody was calling that it took like 15 or 20 redials for you to get across. And when you do, when I got across to the Red Cross, I got an answering machine, you know what I mean? It was like, what do you do exactly? Well, the next day I began to visit fire stations and uh, police precincts. And it was such a nightmare. Every fire station uh, we went to, there were between five and eight and 12 firemen who had uh, died in the attack. Um, And the, the men, the firemen were doing, you know, like 15 hours' work, and then they would come and sleep a little bit and go back. And they had this uh, war-weary look, that thousand-yard stare, they call it, where you're not looking at anything. You're just kind of staring off uh, at, a, at a distance, you know, uh, just a shock. And um, I don't remember the sequence of this, but the sheriff's office here in El Dorado County, Hal Barker was the sheriff at the time, faxed me a letter vouching for me saying uh, that I worked for them and uh, with a few contact numbers for people to call. So I started doing this kind of dance with the bureaucracies. You know, again, where do you go exactly? Someone's, one cop told me, uh, some sergeant said, uh, try the Armory, so I, had 23rd Street Armory in Manhattan, so I went there. And then they said, oh, we don't know what to do with you. You know, go to, there's a ship, uh, uh, there's a, uh, a Navy ship, hospital ship that came in, Pier 95. Maybe you should go there. So I was really getting frustrated, but at the same time, I was on buses with people who were also... Uh, were at, in uh, in the attack at, at Ground Zero during the attack itself. Um, so I was ministering to these people while I was uh, doing this. So I figured, okay, God has me doing something. It's not where I want to be. I want to be uh, where the event occurred. But God has me uh, helping people out here, uh, and it was horrendous stories. A lot of these stories were just horrendous. Um, my job as a chaplain was to listen and to guide people. Um, them into the converse, in, in the conversation to help them process the trauma that they went through. So that's part of my job as a police chaplain, and obviously I'm trying to lead them also to the Lord uh, uh, and point them to God, point them to Christ. Uh, it was really, some of the things just stand out of my mind. There were signs all over, remember, uh, missing since 9-11, all the pictures all over Manhattan, everywhere, everywhere you looked, it was posted all over the place. And most of these people, it took us a few days to realize that the people who didn't make it out on Tuesday morning did not make it out. They were all dead. And it took us a little bit of time to, uh, I, I remember by Thursday we were thinking, we were kind of thinking this out loud because they were saying one thing on TV and you saw the hospitals and they were, there was nobody coming in. They weren't rushing a lot of people in. They got some early on, but that was it. And so we started thinking, you know, th- this is this is becoming recovery. This is not rescue anymore. Uh, so on my way out of Pier 95, I went to Pier 95, the Red Cross, the uh, the, the hospital, uh, the boat hospital was, was there, the hospital at the ship, and uh, again they said, "Oh, we don't know, you know, go. We're not sure where to send you." So I'm walking out of there, and I I saw this guy. I just kind of give you an idea. I saw this guy, and he looked uh, he looked pretty sad, and he was alone. Everybody else was talking uh, to each other. He was alone, so I came up to him. I thought maybe he was a volunteer. I wanted to encourage him in his work, and uh, so he said, "No, he's not a volunteer. He uh, he drove. He and his wife drove from Detroit." And he has a son, he said, and he described how his son was so excited. This was his first job out of college, and he was on the 86th floor. It was a company that lost everyone. And he was part of that company. And I asked him, at that time, of course, we didn't know. You know, we, were, well, we knew, but we didn't know. But I asked him, if it would be correct to say he was expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. He said, yeah, and, and later on, I found out that everybody was lost in that company. Everybody died. Uh, a few days later, I had a, um, f- that uh, fax letter in my hand. And uh, someone told me to go to St. Paul's Chapel downtown. Okay. So I went to St. Paul's Chapel with my fax, uh, affidavit, <laughs> practically, of, uh, that I'm really a police chaplain. Um, and so I went there. And Father Harris, who was in charge, when I told him I was here to serve, he said, yeah, we could do it. Uh, come on in. And there were, you remember, St. Paul's Chapel was kind of a mass unit for uh, for the it gave uh, workers some respite, it gave me and other chaplains an opportunity to minister to these folks who are uh, the first responders. And they had uh, tons of, mount- literally mountains of Band-Aids and eye drops. Eye You need eye drops, the, the, the concrete was so such a fine concrete, it was like talcum powder uh, from these buildings, and it would get into your eyes and it would scratch your cornea. Um, I remember my uh, my contact lenses were completely ruined because of it. I don't know what I was thinking by wearing them. But uh, also they had piles of boots. You know, at that time um, the uh, f- about 150. Uh, feet down in the World Trade Center was about 1500 degrees, and the surface was about 150 degrees. So uh, people were melt their boots were melting. Uh, so they had boots there, and they were chiropractors as well as massage therapists, uh, podiatrists. I mean, whatever you needed, all these people were volunteering their services. And all of our feet were like blistered up, and it was really uh, difficult circumstances to work under. I spoke to a lot of people who were present at the time, and I have kind of a montage in my head, because everybody knows when the first building was hit, the second building, and then the f- first building fell, 1045 or something like that, and then the second building fell. I don't remember exactly now, uh, but um, I have this monta- montage in my head, because everybody was telling me where they were at the time of these major events happening. So I, And I must have spoken to at least I, uh, somewhere around 1,000 people. I have no idea how to count it, because I just kept talking to people all day long. Uh, but a lot of the people were describing how they, uh, when the building, the first building that uh, fell, uh, fell down, how they were running for their lives. They were running away from this cloud of debris and, and, uh, uh, and dust. And uh, they were running away from it, but at the same time, they couldn't see anything. And they were running as fast as they can, but they had no idea if they were going to hit a pole or a car. They didn't know what was going to have, a body, a person. A, they were just running for their lives. And it was hard to breathe, um, uh, just breathing this stuff in. And they were running uh, just in a terrible fear. And I remember, what, again, a lot of people told me from different places who were in different uh, places on the ground said that they were, there was a plane that was coming in. Later on, I found out it was a military plane. But they didn't know it at the time. The cloud, uh, you couldn't see above. And uh, they, they started yelling at each other, another one's coming in, another one's coming in, <laughs> meaning that they thought that another plane was going to hit another uh, another uh, skyscraper. Uh, I remember one woman, uh, she was a park worker, and she was just about a block away from the first impact, and she was describing how she was uh, you know, cleaning up the park, a little park in New York, um, and she saw this plane. And then when it hit the tower, the amount of... Uh, uh, the heat came down, and she said it was so hot that it burned her face. she had to hit the ground. she had to cover her face. it was that hot and uh, I saw the fire trucks that were crushed you couldn 't even tell what they were you know if they weren't, if you couldn 't even see they were red um, and one truck I distinctly remember had uh, this, this like, pickup truck had like a, the lens you know the brake lens was kind of melted like it looked like a tear uh, so that 's how hot it was uh, at the time, but I was ministering. Uh, for a few days at St. Paul's Chapel and something changed. Uh, I wasn't sure what was going on. Security became tighter. They wouldn't let me in so readily. They wouldn't just wave me in. They, uh, they had police escort me to the, to the gates of uh, St. Paul's Chapel. And then um, the next day they told me I had to leave. And they said, uh, uh, you know, I, we have enough chaplains. And I'm thinking, <laughs> there's not enough chaplains in the United States if you have them down here uh, to, to, to minister to the people here. And uh, later on, I found out that they were getting uh, threats. They, were, they had a bomb threat, is what was going on. So they were, they were being threatened, and they wanted to make sure. So I, as I was leaving, I, I begged them for, for, for me to stay, uh, and they wouldn't let me. So I asked one of the ministers. I said, listen, if I come tomorrow, if I had my police ID, could I stay here? He said, yeah, if you have your, your police ID, you could stay. And the next day, Stephanie had flown home, and she sent me, uh, she next day me the my police uh, uniform and my police ID. So I came back to St. Paul's Chapel and this time I went in, you know, no problem, they let me right in. I was wearing a uniform and I was thinking, I hope the terrorists don't catch on to this. Man, this is easy to break the, uh, you know, breach into the uh, security like, like this. I just have this uniform on and some a badge and police ID. And uh, so I'm standing online line to get into St. Paul's Chapel and uh, one of the chaplains points to me and says, chaplain. I said, yeah. He said, uh, we just found eight, uh, we just found some bodies, are you ready to go in? and to uh, ground zero. And I lied. You know, I said, yeah, I mean, who's, I'm not ready for this. Who's ready for this? So I said, yeah. And uh, so I went. We started going in as a group, about uh, 10 of us or so, and we turned the corner. We started going in. I remember, you know, TV pictures can't capture. You know, you, get a, you have a panning of it. This is 16 acres of uh, the entire uh, ground of... Gr- uh, 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 each building is one on is on one acre, but the damage was all around, sixteen acres. And uh television just couldn't capture it, but the breath of the devastation was unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. It took your breath away. And at the time we thought that we were standing on, on uh uh the grave of six thousand or you know more people. Uh it turned out to be uh uh two thousand changed, almost three thousand. Uh there were elevator cables. Like intertwined in this wreck, it looked like a really strange collage, and nothing was recognizable. I do remember walking in and on the trees, there were like computer like wires hanging, and uh, I remember there was a blanket i couldn 't understand what a blanket was doing up there but. and the engineer kind of gave me the tour, us the tour and um you know, working. I remember him saying we were looking at the top. And we were at the South Tower, and now it's seven floors up. This thing used to be 110 floors up. Now it's about seven floors. And he says, "You see the beige wall?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "That's the observation deck." And when Stephanie and I got engaged, that's one of the things we we did. We went up to celebrate. We went up to the observation. Deck. It was actually a cheap date. Don't tell her, but that's <laughs> what it was really. Uh, but really beautiful view of New York, and uh, and you could see 50 miles around if you uh, if you go on a clear day. And here it was, you know, right. Right uh, seven feet ab- uh, seven floors above us, uh, working at the site uh, was a thousand shocks a day. There was a certain pattern developed. It never seemed normal, no matter how many times we went through this. They, the, the, uh, uh, the construction workers would put a hole in these beams on top, and the, they would put a hook on the beam, and the crane operator would lift the beam up, and the uh, cops or poli- police or firemen depending on who was they suspected was found, uh, would send the dogs in and to verify if there's a body there, cadaver dogs, and they would verify it and then um, they would come in and dig by hand. And then they would come, uh, the firemen or police would come uh, with a stretcher and they would put, um, you know, with hazard bags and, and really buckets, and they would put the remains on a stretcher. And they would <coughs> cover the body, and they, you'd saw it on TV. There was a line of five or ten firemen or a police saluting, and they would walk the stretcher through. And that's when the chaplain would come in and say just a few words, and they would take the body to the morgue. This happened over and over again. There was no respite. That was part of the difficulty. It just not, would not stop. My job as a police chaplain, uh, which I did for 14 years, now I have another ministry altogether. I uh, bring the gospel to Jewish people as my, as my main focus. But uh, I had, when I was a police chaplain, there was a certain respite to it. Yeah, I'd have terrible things I would respond to suicide, homicide, whatever, fatality. Uh, but there would be a few days at least, maybe sometimes a week or two before the next one occurs. This was just constant. They would constantly find bodies. There were more uh, survivors uh, to, to minister to. Brothers were looking for brothers, sons for sons. You know, this is uh, New York NYPD, and the fire department is a family kind of uh, tradition, you know. Uh, I remember one time where there was a, one fireman who was looking for his fire uh, father, who was a fire chief, and uh, amazingly, we found his, his body hole, which was really something. But um, uh, one time, well, this kind of encapsulates a lot of what I saw, one time I was offering drinks to people you know, just water, bottles bottle of water and there was this one woman who was just sitting near the North Tower looking down to the South Tower and there was just something about her look so I came up to her and offered her a drink she, uh, I don't think she even took the drink, but we started, I started talking to her and essentially she described where she was during the fir- when the first tower to collapse collapsed she was there, and she happened there was a court Uh, date so that she was there and she was describing how this they started running because the building was collapsing and this black cloud was coming at them and so she started describing how she was running she pointed to the building and she what she did was she ran into this, tried to run into this building with a revolving door and she was describing how she was pushing as hard as she can the cloud was coming, she was pushing it and she couldn't get anywhere and then she turns to her her left and she sees there's another guy pushing so they kind of coordinated and they both got into the building as the cloud passed through them and um she described a lot of the scenes that she saw, the, the people jumping off the buildings and everything that we saw on TV she was there for. And at a certain point she says to me, <sighs> she says, my brother's, in <laughs> my brother's in the South Tower. Uh, he's a fireman. And I'm telling you at that point they wanted to run away screaming. You know, I, 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 thank you very much goodbye, I'll pray for you, you know, uh, but I knew at first I couldn't do that, and I was afraid to ask, so, but I asked her, uh, you say your brother is in there, he's a fireman, do you mean he's doing recovery work? And she said, no, no, he was, he's dead, he's, uh, his body's there in the south tower, he was climbing the building when it fell, and she was describing how she would keep crying and she couldn't stop crying, and I uh, comforted her by telling, listen, I've, I, don't know, I, haven't lost, I haven't lost anyone, I can't stop crying, today. I'd be worried about you if you, if you didn't cry you know. But uh, so that's, um, it, ju- it just did not stop. It just did not stop. What I'd like to do is uh, do a silent memorial, a moment of silence. If you could all uh, rise, please. And we have a flag there. That's good. And um, I just want to describe to you, you know, on that day, you, when you were listening to TV, you may have heard this. In the background, there were these strange alarm sounds uh, at various times uh, for various stations. Not all of them had it. These alarms were going off. And at the time, I didn't, it didn't sound like car alarms. I mean, but I thought maybe the cloud, this dust kind of made it sound car alarms funny. That's not what was happening. If you're not familiar with it, uh, firemen wear something called a pass alarm. A pass alarm is when a fireman goes down, he passes out, this alarm goes off because of' smoke and clouds, and you know I mean you can't see anything. So this uh, alarm goes off to let the other people know that, the, that he's down. What you heard in the, in the, what you heard in the background on that day was about 300 pass alarms that went off, and so what I did, now these are not the pass alarms that happened that day, I just taped this in a fire station, but we'll have a moment of silence and these are the pass alarms.
0: is a classic, though obviously tragic, example. Uh, I still remember the morning of September 11th, 2001, as you do, I'm sure, as Jacob and Stephanie obviously do. I remember the phone call Sal and I received that morning from Darlene, actually, Darlene Allen, that phone call we received that morning informing us that all hell had broken loose. And I remember turning on the television and just both of us watching in stunned disbelief as airplanes crashed intentionally into 110-story towers and then the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And then we remember, I remember hearing the reports of a fourth plane, Flight 93, that went down in a field in Pennsylvania as crew and passengers fought bravely against their hijackers. And it was just seemed like in, in just... And Jacob's right. We, we didn't, none, none of us knew what was going on. But it just seemed like in just a few suspended moments, our world changed forever. And its effects obviously still linger today. And so what have we... What did we learn... That morning, and what are we what are we still learning in the days that follow? You may recall that that people across the nation promised to never forget. But what exactly should we remember? I think there are obviously many things, many things to remember. Maybe the more specific question is How does 9 11 point us to God and God's heart for the world? And so, with those questions in mind, I want to take just the remaining time we have this morning to share seven things that come to my mind, seven truths. That I hope in some way point us to God and to God's heart for the world. Number one, we need to remember, people, we need to remember that life is a gift quickly fleeting that should be valued each and every day. In a matter of moments, nearly 3,000 people perished that morning. Each one survived by various family and friends. Each life had touched so many more lives. Husbands were left without wives and wives without husbands, Children were left without parents and parents without children. Grandparents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, neighbors, friends, countless lives were forever changed. And by this, I think we're reminded of that which is unchanged that life is a gift to be greatly valued. We are not machines to be replaced with newer models. We are personal creations of God made in God's image, which means that our very personhood has tremendous value. Humanity is the crown of God's creation and as awesome and breathtaking as the created world is. And it is right. We have all been we've all had those moments when our breath is taken away as we behold the beauty of our created world. It is awesome and breathtaking as our created World is. The scriptures say that God Himself took even more pleasure in creating man and woman. What is man that you are mindful of Him? David amazed. He says, you have crowned him, you've crowned man, humanity, man and woman. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Job said similarly, what is man, God? What is man that you've made so much of him and that you've set your heart on him? Something about the events of that day caused me to appreciate life more. Sal and I had been married just over seven years at that time. Abby was just eight months old. Olivia, Phoebe, Elias, Sophia existed only in the eternal will of God. And yet somehow, I wanted to love more. I wanted to love my family more. I mean, I'm in, we're 3,000 miles away. I wanted to love my future family more. I wanted to love people in general more. I wanted to value time with them, my extended family, my friends, my neighbors forced to take stock of my life. We all were. The lives of those around us reminded me, reminded us that life is a gift. Do you you remember how people appeared friendlier in the days following 9-11? People everywhere. Everyone was everyone's friend, it seemed. On the street, the grocery store, the restaurant, whatever barriers stood before us, whatever barriers stood before us, race, economics, uh, uh, opinions, politics, whatever barriers stood before us before, just even a day or two before, whatever barrier had seemingly come down. Faced with our own frailty, we were united around the same events, we valued each other more. We were made aware of just how vulnerable we are, vulnerable we are and how special we are. And we understood more in those moments what the psalmist said centuries ago, that our days are measured and our lives are fleeting. And so and so I, I just say this to you as an encouragement. Pick up the phone and call that person you've been thinking about connecting with. Send that note you've been wanting to write and for a thousand reasons you haven't gotten to it yet. Make time, make time, make time. I'm talking to myself here. Make time to get with that person you've been wanting to visit. Share Christ with that person you've been praying for for years. Or that person, share Christ with that person you just met last week. or that person you're going to meet today or sometime this week. Tomorrow, we know this, right? Tomorrow is not promised to us. Not in this life. People matter. Life is short. A gift to be valued each day. Number two. Remember that the temporal is only temporary. The temporal is only temporary. I was a youth pastor then. And at that time, we met each week in the living room of some dear friends who had partnered with me in ministering to our teens. And of course, I broke from our our typical Wednesday plan to instead process with the students what they were thinking and feeling about the events of the previous day. And so on September 12th, students and parents and adult volunteers met together in this living room, crowded living room, to process together. And what became plain to us all is that no one cared much about temporal things. No one cared about the buildings themselves. No one cared about the planes themselves. No one cared about the cost of replacing or repairing these things, though it numbered in the tens of millions. No one really cared about money at all or material possessions, certainly not in those initial moments for students, For students, the homecoming dance, which is such a highlight, right? Such a highlight. The homecoming dance and who was going with whom didn't matter as much. Winning football games against crosstown rivals didn't matter as much. Even the adults present, this was so good. It was so rich. Even the adults present confessed that their petty little squabbles among friends or family members just didn't matter that much. Because in those moments, what mattered most, mattered most. The eternal things, the lasting things occupied our conversation that night, and together we spoke of reprioritizing our priorities. You know, Jesus said to lay up treasures in heaven. He said that earthly treasures are easily destroyed or stolen. They're temporal, but heavenly treasure is never destroyed or never taken by force. And then he said, for where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. Where your treasure, if my treasure's there, there my heart will be as well. And the principle here, this guiding truth here, is that the heart will naturally pursue that which it treasures. So often our problem is that we try to satisfy the longings of our heart with things that cannot satisfy. We're told the Scriptures say that God has put eternity within our hearts and yet we're trying to stuff our hearts with temporal things. And it helps explain this reality of trying to stuff the eternal with the temporal. Helps explain why so many people today, even the wealthiest of people who we would assume wouldn't have a care in the world, why so many people today are miserable and desperate and and longing and discontent. And so we have to ask ourselves, right, where does my treasure lie? Be honest. Where does my treasure lie today? Where does it lie? Which kingdom, for which kingdom does my heart long? The eternal or the temporal? The heavenly or the earthly? And then we have to say, well, what does the way in which I I, I, I spend or invest my money or spend or invest my time reveal about the treasure of my heart? The temporal is only temporary while the eternal endures forever. And on a related note, number three, remember to hope for heaven as never before. You know, amidst all this talk, especially in those days and years, amidst all this talk of homeland security in the 15 years since 9-11, isn't it true that we've realized how elusive security is and how insecure we really are? That day we learned that the great U.S. of A., is not impervious to attack, to attack all our military might and national intelligence and technological advancement could not deter 19 hellbent men from wreaking irreparable damage. New York City and Washington, D.C., iconic places on the world stage were under siege and we weren't sure uh, uh, where the attacks would end or where they would strike next. The world became smaller that day. And each of our worlds respectively became much smaller while the fear of what's coming next only grew. Isn't that right? Just recently I spoke with someone 15 years later I spoke with someone who has indefinitely postponed their long-dreamed-of vacation to Europe because of the increase and threat of terrorism. But even here at home, we just don't feel as safe as we once did. And from all from this earthly insecurity, I think should should arise a longing for heaven. Wouldn't that be God's heart for us this morning, a longing for heaven? Hebrews thirteen fourteen states, For here, here, this world, the earthly, here we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city. Even the greatest of empires have fallen. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The Christian is graced with the hope of a celestial city. God is its builder and keeper, and God assures his people that this heavenly city is their heavenly city too. Those who trust in the Lord are heirs to this city, a kingdom, we're told, that cannot be shaken. You see, I think the fires of our heavenly hope are kindled and stoked and fanned to flame as we realize that this world, as wonderful as it is at times, cannot offer the peace we so desire and need. And so remember to hope for heaven as never before. Fourthly, remember that sin and evil is alive and deadly. Remember that sin and evil is alive and deadly. I think the many horrific images from 9-11, if we take kind of just the big picture view, picture the depths of human depravity. The, The depths of sin and selfish ambition were on full display, and in this, if we're wise... And willing enough to look, we catch a glimpse into our own sinful ambitions and their fatal consequences. Are we willing to look? Because we're at the very intersection where my pursuit of my self-centered ideals bump up against your pursuit of your self-centered ideals We have conflict. And where there is conflict, there is a struggle for power. And where there are power struggles, there are casualties left in the wake. It may be a loss of life or loss of freedom, or a loss of friendship, or a whole host of other losses. Listen, it happens on the macro level between nations, and it happens also on the micro level between people. And behind this depravity... Uh, exists the non- demonic forces the scriptures tell of a war that rages that's not of an earthly nature it's not man against man or nation against nation but a war against the principalities of darkness it's a spiritual battle the bible speaks of the devil and his devilish schemes saying we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we must open our eyes, loved ones, to see that Satan is real and he plays us for the full and he conspires against us. He plays upon our sinful inclinations to rebel against God and against all that is good. we have an example of this in Luke chapter 22. We're told that, that in that chapter, Satan, or at that time, Satan, we're told, entered into Judas. And then Judas went and conferred with the authorities on how to betray Jesus. Satan manipulated Judas even as Judas became a willing player in his wicked schemes. And that's what we saw on 9-11 as the principalities of darkness played upon human sin by arousing the innate depravity of an enemy dead set against us. But we must realize that it hits home For me and for you, for each one of us, because we must realize that sin, human sin, your sin, my sin, the sin of others, it always brings death. Always, every single time. On that morning, we learned in part. Just how alive and deadly sin and evil truly are, and it shocked us, and it awakened us as it should. Number five: remember that love and justice is costly. Love and just lo- <laughs> Love and justice are costly. I want you to hear these surprising words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But no, 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 I say to you, Love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And we need to see that Jesus, with this statement, he, he is presenting our love for our enemy as evidence that we are children of God. That's huge. And yet the Bible also upholds justice, right? And the just punishment of evildoers. And so we have Romans 13, for example, that speaks of civil authorities appointed by God who act as God's servant to, servants to rightly punish wrong. And it says that these authorities do not bear the sword in vain, but act actually as avengers to carry out God's wrath on the the wrongdoer. And so we're placed in this ever-present tension between love and justice, between love for enemy who does us wrong and the just punishment of their wrongdoing. That's hard. On the personal level, we're learning... We're learning... (laughs) We're learning. We haven't learned it yet, I don't think. We're learning how to pray for our enemies as Jesus taught. So we're praying for their salvation, for the eyes of their blind hearts to be open to see the beauty of Christ, for, for God's mercy on their behalf. We're learning to pray, even as Jesus did from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. On the public level, that's the personal level. On the public level, however, we're learning to trust that God has placed the appointed authorities for good reason. And we trust that these authorities will dispense justice in accordance with all that is right and true. We're praying, we're learning to pray for our authorities, to rightly discern that which is just, and and we want to support just measures in the public square. We promote justice over vengeance. We promote love over hate, which means walking a sometimes difficult road, because love and justice are costly. Which leads to the next point, number six. We must remember the gospel and the call to be gospel centered. We must remember the gospel and the call to be gospel centered. The unbelievably good news of the gospel is unbelievably costly. In that God's love and justice met perfectly at the cross. On the cross, God loved His enemies, yet justly punished their sins. On the cross, God's Son became sin and bore sin in our stead. On the cross, Jesus loved us beyond our comprehension, yet suffered justice infinitely beyond our worst nightmare. This is the very heart of the gospel, and the gospel changes everything. 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 The gospel changes how I look at events like 9-11. The gospel changes how I look at that person who's under my skin. The gospel changes how I approach sadness and sorrow in my life. The gospel changes how I approach anger in my life. The gospel changes everything. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, the love of Christ controls us. He could say that. He could say that. I want us to say that. The love of Christ controls us. Because one has died for all. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, we sometimes speak of reaching the end of ourselves, of hitting rock bottom before seeing our need of God. Because isn't it true that it's, that it's often in the rubble of our sinful ambitions of living for ourselves, as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians, it's so often in the rubble of living for ourselves, our sinful ambitions, where we meet a Savior who has come not to condemn us, but rescue us. In some ways, I want to make sure I, I try to communicate this Clearly, in no way am I trying to lessen or belittle the, the obvious impact of 9 11. That stands on its own. But in some ways, we have all experienced, I'm talking about in our little world, in your world, in your, in your life, in your life, we've all experienced in some way 9 11 like moments. Where in those moments, your world comes crashing down around you. And it exposes you and it magnifies your need for something more, something greater, someone greater. And the gospel emerges from the rubble of those personal sized ground zeros, if you will. And it pierces the haze and smoke and ash of our rock bottom experiences with the light of Jesus Christ. Who among us, who among us would not grab hold of a rescuer's hand who was trying to save us from a fallen building? Who among us would not welcome life When death seems so near. And so, to person after person after person, and to the persons in your life, the gospel says you cannot do it on your own. You need help, you need a savior. You need a rescuer. The weight is too heavy. You're trapped and you can't get out on your own. You need help. You need a rescuer. You need a savior. You need the savior. Whatever your situation is today, and again, I'm I'm just I'm urging you to think also of the situation of the situations of those in your life. Whatever the situation today, do not delay in grabbing hold of the gospel of God and of God Himself, and remember always to be gospel-centered. And then seventh, and finally. And perhaps the hardest, because it just flies so counter to our perspective. Remember that God is sovereign still and good all the time. I think events like 9-11 beckon us to lift our eyes to behold a great God. For only as we see God as being greater than our sin, greater than our situation, greater than our suffering, will we find life and peace. Our view of God must grow to expand and extend beyond the sorrows of our lives. It's one thing to know God as Savior. That's just so good. It's one thing to know God as Savior, but it's something much more to know Him as your sovereign. Like Joseph in Egypt who for years languished in prison unjustly, only to become prime minister of that once mighty nation, we must humbly recognize that God governs our lives, God governs our world in similar fashion today, even in and through the sin of the wicked. It doesn't mean that God uh, takes sinners off the hook, they're held accountable. It doesn't mean that God causes sin, He does not. It does mean that God is not thwarted by it. That He fulfills His all good and redemptive plan even through the tragedies caused by human wickedness. It means that God is good all the time and that His good purposes always prevail to suggest That some things are beyond God's control, as some do, is to say that God is in some way subordinate to another. To suggest that God only reacts to things. Oh, this happened? What am I going to do? to suggest that God only reacts to things instead of rules over all things, belittles His ability and belies our confidence in Him. But trust and faith in God, we're told, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. You don't see it right now. Not with these eyes. You see it with these eyes. And so, so I, I want, and I want for you, I want us to increase, I, I desire, God, I desire the increase of my confidence in you. I, there are times where my confidence wanes and I wonder what are you up to and why. So God, I just desire the increase of my confidence in you. not only when things are going well, but especially when they're not. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Today, I, I, I was going to, I'm closing now. Thank you for your patience. T- today, I was going to try to throw some pictures on the screen. I just didn't have the time to put it together. Maybe you can do this on your own. Today, the ugly effects of 9/11 look much different than they did 15 years ago. Ground Zero, as as horrific as it looked then is now a beautiful memorial which was dedicated and open to the public on the 10 year anniversary 5 years ago and so you can see pictures there are just lush green trees that now grow on that hallowed ground there are these beautiful recessed pools and waterfalls that flow into the pools that mark the footprints of the twin towers the names of those who were killed were engraved in remembrance. There's this incredible museum. You could even take, I think, like a, a, a virtual tour online. This incredible museum that details what happened and what has happened since. My understanding, I, I, I don't know the full, f- I don't know the facts about this, but my understanding is once a year, I think, today, there are these blue, Lights that are projected up into the sky that give this just incredible picture as if the towers were still there. I mean, amazing beauty has replaced unthinkable destruction. And I have to ask, we have to ask, if finite, if flesh and blood, if finite artists and architects can bring beauty from the ashes of ground zero, just imagine the beauty that God will bring from the ash heap of a fallen world. Imagine the beauty of a world Made glorious and of God's glorified people basking in his glory. When when glory arrives in full, the heavenly city will come down to earth, renewing and restoring all things. And then and there, there will be no more trial or tragedy, there will be no more sin and suffering. There will be no more death or despair. There will be no more devastating and unexpected news, only good news, only good news all the time. For those found in Jesus Christ, there will be life, new and everlasting life with God and all of God's people throughout all generations gathered from all over the world. People everywhere pause today to remember 9-11 rightly so but may we never forget that life is a gift to be valued each day that the temporal is only temporary but the internal endures forever that the hope of heaven is stronger than ever That sin and evil are alive and deadly. That love and justice are costly. That the gospel changes everything. That even tragedies beckon us to behold a good and sovereign God who loves us with an everlasting love. And is with us. And promises never to forsake us. And so may the, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and may the love of God and may the fellowship of the Spirit of God be your portion today and forevermore. Amen.